Father, we are grateful for the work of Christ. What a powerful name. Christ has done so much for us. And we come with praise and worship this morning. And as we study the word, we continue to remember that we are knit together in one body, by one spirit, under one name, that powerful name of Jesus. Thank you so much for what you have done for us. And we return praise to you this morning as a result. Father, may your truth from the word just permeate our minds and hearts and change our lives as we study together. And it is in that powerful name, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So we do want to look at the topic of Christian unity this morning. And there's a great number of reasons why uh, this is worth our time to look at. First of all, Christian unity is the preeminent characteristic of a group of believers. And therefore, simply on that fact alone, because of its importance, because of the significance of that characteristic to a group of believers, we should once in a while remind ourselves of what Christian unity really is. Secondly, another reason we should look at unity this morning is because God has brought us here to be a part of this group of believers from many different backgrounds. Some of you unchurched until you came here. And the rest of us from many different denominational backgrounds which had varying commitments to teach the truth of scriptures. And therefore there may be varying levels of understanding of what Christian unity really is. And so it's good to take a look at that. Another reason is that some of you um, have come from church experiences where there have not been peace and unity among the believers of that church, but rather discord and conflict that was emotionally corrosive and bitterly divisive. And so when we start talking about Christian unity, because of that background that you've had, you are very wary of this subject, wondering if there is ever an opportunity for unity on this side of heaven. And for those of you who came from that, I hope the scriptures today are a real encouragement to you. Another reason why it's good to talk about unity is that the unbelieving world bombards us with their definition of things. And they want the church to adopt their definition. And their definition of unity and love are very different than what the Christian definition of unity and love is. And the world actually conflates those two concepts into one thing, unity and love. And that is not the case at all. Unity and love, as we understand it, are two different things. And we need to make sure we're clear about that. And we adopt the world's definition of those concepts to our own peril. And there's a lot of other reasons why unity is a valuable thing to talk about, uh, but with only one uh, short time to look together at this concept, we'll sort of take a glancing blow at this today uh, and maybe uh, look at it again in the future sometime. So to begin, would you turn with me 
to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, in our time together this morning, we want to look at the foundation of unity, and then we want to look at the recipe for unity, and finally, we want to look at the results of unity. So we are starting in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. And let's read together just those first few verses. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, at first glance, those two verses might seem a little strange uh, to begin a conversation on unity, but let's look at what Paul is really saying there. He's writing to Gentiles, and he's reminding them of the great gulf and conflict that existed between them uh, and the Jews. Actually, this was a tragic and almost horrible situation that daily confronted Gentiles that lived in Israel among the Jews. The Gentiles faced open and active and pervasive and officially sanctioned discrimination on a daily basis. Now there's no doubt that God told the Jews that they were to keep separate from the Gentiles with their religious practices. But what happened was the Jews, in their sin, decided that meant that they could be proud and they could discriminate and they could take advantage of the Gentiles. And so Paul here is reminding the Ephesians, who were Gentiles, of how it was in Israel at that time before Christ. That the scales of justice were not equal. That the scales in the marketplace were not equal. That there was active discrimination. Nothing uh, noted that more than the temple itself. Remember there was a wall in the temple court and the Gentiles were only allowed to go so far and the Jews were allowed to go further. On that wall was a sign that read, no stranger that is a non-Jew, no stranger is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which will follow. And on the screen is this sign that was posted on the temple wall. It is amazing that it actually survived intact from Titus and the Roman army's sacking and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But this was found in the late 1800s by an archaeologist. And that's what this sign says. To a Gentile, whoever's caught passing this wall, your death will be on your head. That wall was a national symbol representing the complete alienation of the Jew from the Gentile. 
and of the Gentile from God and from uh, the nation and the benefits of God's riches. Now, this strife and conflict between two groups of people is not unique to the Jews and the Gentiles of that time. We know that this has been a problem since creation. The first sibling rivalry occurred between the first two brothers on earth. The first murder occurred between the first two brothers on earth. This conflict is always rooted in sin. That, is, that initial murder, of course, was caused by jealousy and pride. Okay? Sin always brings division. Remember that phrase, sin brings division. Say it with me. Sin brings division. It always does. Okay? And just as an aside, it's not surprising in our rapidly paganizing American culture today, our post-Christian culture, that we see this rise of tribalism where everybody is sorting themselves into different groups, sometimes for identity purposes, many times to feel justified in the pursuit of perverse proclivities. Okay, the, this is not surprising. It's not surprising that this tribalism is being encouraged by our social and our educational and our government institutions because they have also moved away from any sense of Christian morality. Remember that sin brings division and deepening sin brings deepening division. Okay? So Paul here is writing to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. He's reminding them of the wretched state in which they existed. Okay, they were excluded. They were alienated. They were the focus of hatred and mistrust and injustice. All right. And now we turn to verse 13. But now, and that but now, is an incredible statement. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Okay? Wow. The work of Christ brings peace. It can bring people together. This is a key verse. This is a theological truth which we all need to remember. That there can be no peace between men without Christ. Let's remember this. Sin brings division. Jesus brings peace. A little tepid there, people. Sin brings division. Jesus brings, amen. Can anybody say amen? This is, this is amazing. I'm so thankful for the choir and the worship team this morning. All of those songs focused on the work of Christ. And the, the foundation of Christian unity is the work of Christ. Without Christ, there is no peace. 
What is the one thing that separates men from each other? Sin. What is the thing that separates man from God? Sin. Okay? Because of the work of Christ, all the distinction of man can be erased. Because Christ is the only answer in the world to true peace. United Nations peacekeepers can separate warring parties, but can they really bring peace? No. Okay? Only Jesus can bring peace. Okay, now notice the results of this work of, of making people one, of breaking down the dividing barrier, the walls that sin has caused, starting in verse 15 of Ephesians 2. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having been put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. <clears throat> For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Amazing. We as uh, individualistic Americans often think about salvation and Christ's work in those terms. Christ has saved me so that I can enjoy eternal life. And Christ has saved me so that my life is better. And when I'm saved, I get the Holy Spirit who helps, who helps me make better decisions about my life. A little self-centered there, isn't it? Okay, All of that is true. There's no doubt about it, right? But we often approach our Christian life very self-centered. I have news for you. You don't sing from your own cloud in heaven. Okay? You're, you're not... Okay? We, are, we do gain immense personal benefit from being saved. No question about it. And some of you were saying amen because we enjoy that tremendously, right? But we are also saved into one body. And we are saved to belong to a community of believers. And we are to be united together. And oftentimes we somewhat forget that very important aspect of our life together. That's part of this concept of Christian unity. But it's important to remember that without Christ's work, we could not have unity because we couldn't put away sin. And sin is what causes division. Very good. All right. Now, before we move on, I do want to mention that the foundation of unity, therefore, lays out the limits of unity. The Bible talks at great length about unity among believers, but it never talks about unity between believers and non-believers. So we can have unity with any brother 
anywhere in the world who is a believer in Christ. Because we have that in common. But we can have unity with non-believers. And where this comes important for us to understand is that we can have unity with traditional Christian denominations and recent Christian movements that now embrace a non-redemptive theology and reject the truth claims and commands of Scripture. We can't have unity with those who say they are Christians but deny the truth of Scripture and instead have substituted secular philosophies in its place. Let's just think about some of those truth claims that are being rejected by those who claim that they're Christian. John 14, 6, and he said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's being rejected. We, we can't have unity with someone who rejects the work of Christ for salvation. Matthew 6, 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Recent headlines tell us that over half of the congregations in the country now believe that God is an ATM to give them all those other things first and not seek his righteousness and his kingdom. How about Genesis 1.27? And God said, let's make man in our own image. In the own image, he made them male and female. He made them. Okay? These are all truth claims of Scripture which are being rejected by those who carry with them the name Christian. In fact, a lot of those same people would actually reject at least the first third of the book of Genesis as an origins myth and as a flood myth. We can only have unity with those who believe in the effective work of Christ for salvation. Now, when we say this, when we place limits on our unity, we get a lot of pushback, both from those unorthodox Christian ministries and from the world. From the unorthodox Christian ministries, we get pushback that says, oh, you're too proud to associate with us. You hold yourself holier than thou, which is certainly not the case. We, of all people, have no right for any uh, pride because we understand that without salvation, we are nothing, and we are on the road to hell. Okay? And from the world, we get this pushback of, well, you don't, you don't, you're not willing to partner with us. You don't love your neighbor. Jesus said, love your neighbor. What's wrong with you people? We get all this, we get that from the world. Well, we do love our neighbor. And you all do help others in your community and your literal neighbors, okay? We do care. But that's where there is this difference between love and unity. We can love others, but we can't be unified with them if they're not believers, and it's important that we understand that difference. Well, quickly moving on now to the recipe for unity. And you, 
So you say, Dave, I hear you say that Christ is the foundation of our unity, but why then is there still division in the church? Why is there enmity? Why is there unrelenting tension in some churches? There's constant friction, which makes it awful to be a part of that. There's a lack of true fellowship. Well, the answer is that if there is division, there is sin. Okay, and while Christ establishes unity, man does have a role to play in maintaining unity. And let's turn to Ephesians 4 quickly to catch that. Now, you will remember that in all of Paul's prison epistles, he spends the first part of the book discussing doctrine and theology, and he spends the last part of the book talking about the practical application of it. And so it is here today in Ephesians with unity. In chapter 2, he's talking about the theological basis of unity. Hey, that this is established by Christ. And now we turn to chapter 4. It starts with the word therefore, meaning now that I've talked about all this theology, here's how you guys are to live. And what's the first topic he discusses about how to live? Unity. Okay, so let's look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, verse 1, that walking worthy or walking in a manner worthy of the calling, that word worthy means equivalence or equivalent. So you are to walk in a way that measures up to this tremendous, beautiful calling that you've received from the Lord for salvation. And what should characterize or what's the recipe of that walk worthy? Look at the definition Humility, gentleness, patience, okay, contentment in all situations. Now, there are a lot of issues of Christian liberty that are included under this, okay? And in a congregation this big, a group of believers, we have tremendous varying opinions on things. Uh, one little stupid example would be the coffee we have out here in the morning. Some of you wish that when you walked in the door, you would be confronted by the aroma of freshly ground Sumatran and Guatemalan beans mixed together in a perfect blend. And that at least once a month you could have the option of lattes with cream from cows that have been on pasture 22 out of every 24 hours. And, and that would just make life great. Some of you come in here and you're like, I don't care what kind of burned coffee you give me as long as it's caffeine, you know. And then some of you are of the opinion, if you'd get out of bed an hour earlier, you could drink your coffee at home and you wouldn't have to drink it at church. All right, so... Somehow, we managed to have peace over the coffee issue, <laughs> even though we have all those varying ideas about it. And of course, that is nothing of as importance 
as some of the things which potentially can divide us, like our economic status and our education and our politics. Okay? Folks, Satan knows that unity is the, to be the preeminent mark of a Christian assembly. And so do you not think that our enemy, the devil, as he prowls around like a lion, is absolutely committed to destroying our unity? Yes. Folks, you need to remember this recipe and your responsibility of walking worthy with gentleness and patience, being easy with each other, as Romans 12 says, considering each other better than yourselves. Okay. We do need to clarify a couple things about this. Sin brings division. And in the midst of being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving and humble in spirit and thinking of others better than yourselves, that does not mean the toleration of continual, unconfessed, unrepentant sin within the body. Unity is not maintained by the tolerance of sin. And this is exactly the opposite of what people will tell you. People will say, oh, if you have a strong church discipline policy where you don't allow sin, if you actually confront people who are in unrepentant sin, you are going to cause division in the body. Actually, the opposite is the case because sin is what causes division. Okay? Just look at what's happening as the sec right now as the second largest Protestant denomination in America. The United Methodists tear themselves apart. Why is that division happening? Because first of the tolerance and then the acceptance and then the embrace, the celebration, and the promotion of sexual sin. Okay. And of course, we all recall that in another one of Paul's books, 1 Corinthians, he reprimands the church, the Corinthian church, for allowing and accepting this unrepentant sinner to stay in their midst. So the same author who's telling us to be gentle with each other and humble and kind is also telling us to not allow unconfessed sin. So we have to have the wisdom to know the difference. Another quick point of clarity is that this unity that we pursue as believers does not mean uniformity. Unity is powered by the Spirit and is an inward attitude that's given voice in outward expression. Uniformity is compliance to an external set of standards. And some of us have grown up in legalistic churches where there wasn't so much concern about the inner man, but more concern about how we looked and performed on the outside, which gives rise to all kinds of hypocrisy and legalism. Unity is not uniformity. Notice in Ephesians 4, verse 7, immediately after Paul is talking about all of this unity and how we are in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that's an indication that God sees us all as individuals and he dispenses gifts to us individually. Real quickly, as we wrap up, turn to John 17. What are the results of unity? And this is really why we need to pay attention to this subject. 
John 17, starting in verse 20. Let me just say this at the outset. When there is unity among a body of believers, it's immensely satisfying to those of us who are part of it. It's a salve to the soul to be in peace. It's wonderful to come here on a Sunday morning and be in fellowship and be in peace without underlying tensions. Okay? But there's a greater purpose that's outside of ourselves as to why we've got to pay attention to unity. And Jesus talks about it in John 17. This is a prayer right before Jesus leaves the Last Supper to go to the Mount of Olives. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And in verse 20, he's praying for all believers who were alive then and all believers who will be alive on the earth. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. And here's the key phrase, why now? Why in unity? So the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Why should we do all this self-sacrificing? Why should we follow that recipe for unity? To be humble and gentle and patient with others and show tolerance. Because this prayer in John 17 tells us that the reputation of Christ and the credibility of the gospel is based on the unity of the church. Let me say that again. The reputation of Christ and the credibility of the gospel is based on the unity of the church. Okay? This is critically important. Is it important to tell others, to have a personal testimony and tell others about Christ? Yes. Is it important that we have evangelists who do that? Yes, God gives spiritual gifts of evangelism. But it's every bit as important or more important that you maintain the unity of this place as best you can, putting away sin and bitterness and gossip over your dining room table, over others in the church. It's as important you do that as it is to talk to others about Christ. Because when you fracture unity in a body of believers, it damages the credibility of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is praying about here. Imagine right before he leaves for the Garden of Gethsemane and all the things that are going through his mind, of all the things he could have prayed for, what does he pray for? The unity of the church. That's why it's the preeminent mark, or should be the preeminent mark, of a group of Christians. May we strive to work worthy, walk worthy of our calling, knowing that it is the one factor that our Lord and Savior says is how the unbelieving world comes to know him. Let's pray together.
Father, we confess that we have all failed at times in walking worthy of our calling, and that in our sin and in our foolishness, we have demeaned your reputation, and we have damaged the credibility of the gospel in the minds of the unbelievers around us. Father, we ask forgiveness for that. Father, we also ask forgiveness for, at times, having so much of a self-centered mind and not realizing that you have saved us into this body of believers and that we have such a commitment and responsibility to live together before you. And Father, these thoughts and these confessions are on our mind as we now come uh, to communion and as we come together as one to celebrate your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.